0: You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are so glad that you're here with us. So let me ask this as we get started. How many of you are parents? Can I ask that? Wow, a lot of you. That is amazing. No wonder you all look so tired. Uh, (laughs) So Carrie and I, we became parents in 2007. And truth be told, we had no idea what we were doing. And in fact, here's a picture that I've never shown before. Uh, This is right before we were about to go into the delivery room. So uh, my wife, totally amazing, incredibly beautiful as always. But I want you to note something, that underneath that hat that I was wearing was a fairly decent amount of hair. So people are like, oh, is it, what is it? Where does the, people are looking in the wrong direction. Like, where does baldness come from? Is it the father's side? No, it comes from the children. That's where baldness comes from. Anyway, so, but uh, it was a friend of ours that actually took that picture for us and, and said, Bob, you're, how do you feel? You're about to be a dad. And I said, um, I feel like vomiting. Is that a good sign? And uh, they're like, not really, and uh, I was so nervous, honestly, because I-, I was so nervous about becoming a dad because I had no idea what it meant to be a dad. Um, my parents were divorced when I was very young, and so I didn't grow up with a dad in my home. I had a stepdad for a few years, but um, so I was kind of basing, and I had read some books before uh, when my wife got pregnant. So I was kind of basing my parenting on essentially three things: that is, biblical principles that I had learned from the Bible and some parenting books. Mike Brady from the Brady Bunch and Dr. Huxtable from the Cosby Show. That was basically what I was basing all my parenting on. And so I was so nervous about becoming a dad because I knew, you know, you're raising a child's an incredible responsibility and my whole thought was this is the thing I kept saying like am I responsible enough? Because I looked at my life growing up like I would lose things. Like I was thinking about how I would lose my Star Wars action figures as a kid. And I'm like, can I be trusted to not lose a child? Because my Star Wars figures came with a case. Mia did not come with any kind of accessory case. Uh, and so, but anyway, when Mia got home, so we were, you know, she gave birth, we were in the hospital for a few days, which you don't realize. Everybody's like, I'm so excited to, they're so excited to get home. Like, you need to stay there as long as they will let you. Uh, so that's the advice that I give to people. Like, don't try to leave go home too early. So they gave us Mia. And then uh, do you remember, dad, do you remember like driving home from the hospital? I have never been so nervous. I, and I drove from 172nd Street because all my kids were born here in Miramar. And I drove, I live like three miles away. And so I was dri- I have never been more terrified on Miramar Parkway than I was that day. And so we get home and I I remember we had to cut off the security bracelet, that because, you know, you want kids to feel comfortable when they come in the world, so you make them feel like they're on house arrest. Um, so, anyway, so I have to have that, like, security bracelet on, and then, um, so we, they, so I, my wife is holding Mia, and then I'm supposed to cut off the little ankle bracelet thing, um, and so I was so careful not to hit her, you know, like, cut her with the the scissors, that... And I wasn't even realizing it that as I was so careful to cut her with the scissors, but I, I pinched her with the back of the, on her other foot, I pinched her with the back of the scissors. And then Mia started crying, and then Carrie started crying, and then I started crying. And I'm like, I'm not sure we're ready for this level of responsibility. You know, I mean, it was, it was such a mess. And we had only had her home for five minutes. And I'm like, if this is how it began, I don't know where this is going to end. And so now I'm. Thankful to report that uh, this upcoming Saturday, Mia's going to turn 14. Uh, Yeah, so we're very excited about that. My son, Xander, is 11. My daughter, Livy, is 9. And uh, being a dad has been one of the most rewarding experiences of my life. But one of the things you know, and this is kind of one of the things that parents talk about, is that, you know, kids don't come with a manual right? There's no tag that says dry clean only or something like that. And, and then there's this other thing that you learn because when you're, when you have one, when you have no children, you're an expert on parenting. Um, when you have one, you still think you know a lot. And then you have a second one. And here's what I've found is that if your first one was difficult, your next one is usually easier. If your first one was easy, God help you. Because the second one is going to be difficult, and you're going to want to send this one back to the manufacturer. Like, something happened here, and I don't know what's going on. And so, anyway, and that's just the way it is. But one of the things that you've probably found this, if you have, you know, one, two, three. If you have more than three, put that in the prayer request. We'll pray for you this week. And, um, but anyway, but one of the things that I've noticed, and you've probably noticed this true, is, is that you parent your kids differently based on their temperament and how they respond to things. And I've noted this even when it comes to how I ask each of my kids to clean their room. Now, my son, Xander, I can walk into his room and speak to him like an alpha male. And, uh, and I can just say, Xander, this room is a disaster. I need you to clean it up. All right, dad, sure thing. And he'll, he'll do it. That's all the discussion that's needed. If I were to walk into Livy's room and say, Livy, this room is a disaster, clean it up, there would be crying for like an hour. So you got to do so this, there's a different strategy. I got to walk in, sit on the bed, ask her how she's doing, what kind of day she's been having, what she had for lunch when I was at church all day, you know, and I'm, so what kind of, what'd you have for lunch? Oh, what'd you guys do? How was homeschool? You know, and that. And then I got to say, Liv, I, I have a problem. Do you think you could help me out? Of course. Of course. How can I help? And, and, and I'm like, well, see, uh, I, I'm like, the, you know how your room is a little bit messy? Can never invoke the disaster word. You know how your room is a little bit messy? Uh, yeah. Well, see, we need your help. We need your help keeping the room clean. Do you think that you could start working on cleaning your room and that would be a huge help to your mom and I. Like, oh, that would be my pleasure. I'm going to spend the rest of the afternoon working on, on the room. And it's, like, and it's like the greatest thing. And uh, with Mia, it's a totally different thing. I walk into Mia's room, and Mia's a musician. so She's got, like, pianos and guitars and stuff in her room. So I'll grab the acoustic guitar and start strumming a few chords. And we'll sing a song together. And, and, uh, and then, you know, once we're done, last chord rings out. And now we're, like, nice and warmed up. And then I'll be like, Mia, how you doing? Good, all right, hey. Um, I, I need you to clean your room, but what I really need are three things. Because if I just say clean your room um, tomorrow, it's nothing will have happened. Because it's just, there, there's, anyway, so what I say to her is, um, I'm like, here's what I need. I need three things. Could you pick up the clothes on the floor so we could actually see the tile? And then... <laughs> Could you make your bed and organize your dresser? And so it's like three very specific things. So once again, just reiterating, pick up the clothes, make the bed, organize the dresser. If I could create like an alliteration or something, you know what I mean? Um, So, um, you know, so it's like clothes, bed, dresser which I guess makes CBD, but you shouldn't say that to your children because that involves kind of something else and that's not even legal in the state. So anyway, so just forget I said that. I just backed into that joke by accident. So this that'll get, ed- edit that, all right? Edit CBD for your children, um, which is not what I'm saying. George, help me. I don't know what I'm doing here. I'm, something went wrong. 10 o'clock did not get this material. So, <laughs> so anyway, but once again, the goal is, because I'm just going to move on from that, and uh, there's people here for the first time like checking this one off the list <laughs> and find some other church. I hear this this other pastor who doesn't talk about CBD with his children. And, uh, so, <laughs> But listen, your goal right, as a parent is that you want to connect with your kids in a way that actually gets them to do the thing that you're talking about. Now, here's the good news. The good news is that God is parenting you the exact same way. Have you noticed that God has this way of, you see, God seems to do something with you that's different than what he does with other people. And God has this other thing. You ever have God do something with somebody else? Like, I wish God would do that with me. And God does something totally different. And the reason that God is doing that is that he just has this way, right? Because it's a very, very personal way that he's leading and directing and loving you through your life. But you know, if God did the very same thing with everyone, And everything was kind of mapped out. Honestly, wouldn't it be like, wouldn't someone have written a book about that already? Like, where do you find yourself in, you know, God's parenting plan? And you're like, oh, I'm in chapter three at this stage of my life. And then someone, you know, some other person's like, I'm struggling financially. I guess I'm in chapter 11 uh, of that book. And uh, anyway, it's a little, forget that. So I didn't even try that one out at 10 o'clock either. I don't know what you guys are doing to me today, but it might be the extremely large espresso that they made me right before I came down here giving me the jitters. So, <laughs> so anyway, but if, if God is, and he is, parenting you like a loving heavenly father, then that means that he is well aware of what you are dealing with right now. And he is working with us accordingly. You see, if, if you're just joining us, and let me just tell you, you're kind of catching us at the, uh, closer to the tail end of a very long series that we've been doing. We started a series through the book of Hebrews back in uh, September. And so now we've got, after today, we'll have three messages left in it. But th- Hebrews, if you're not aware, is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a difficult time, and they were asking this question, which is such a relevant one, and that is, if God loves me, why is life so hard? And the answer is this very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement for them to do the one thing that's going to matter when you're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And throughout this book, from the beginning of chapter 1, the message that the writer has been showing us is that Jesus is better than anything else that we could put our trust in. And over the, t- the cor- course of the first 10 chapters, he outlines that. Then in chapter 11, he switches and he starts outlining for us the, he- the heroes of the Hebrew faith and how they trusted God no matter the circumstance. And, th- and that's what brings us now to chapter 12, when he actually finally says the words of fixing your eyes on Jesus. And in this section... The writer is going to talk to us about how to deal with challenging circumstances, and the way that we deal with challenging circumstances is by fixing our eyes on Jesus and letting go of the things that are hurting and sabotaging us. But it's also about understanding what God is doing in whatever season that you find yourself in your life. And if you find yourself going through a challenging season, and by the way, that's probably all of us if, you're, if you live here permanently on planet Earth, um, but here's what we're going to find as we journey together is that the things that you think that God is doing to you, he's actually doing for you. And in this section, what this section of Scripture, what we're going to show and and, and prove as we read this is that nothing that you experience, no challenge, no difficulty, no trial, no pain that you're experiencing is in vain. And that God is going to use all of it, whether externally or, more importantly, internally. So we're going to start in uh, Hebrews chapter 12, And it says this in verse 1. It says, Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, three things I want to tell you about how God is parenting us, but here's the first one. And that is that God is encouraging our faith to press on. Now, there's a metaphor that the writer uses here in verse 1, he uses it again in verse 4, he uses it again in verse 11, where he refers to life as a race, and it's a very good analogy for life. The trouble is, is that in American culture, we tend to take it the wrong way. We hear that life is a race, we interpret it as a rat race, and we think that that means if life is a race, then my goal is to beat everyone else. And that's not exactly the case. Life is not about beating everybody else, and if you live your life like that, I can almost guarantee that you will be alone and unhappy. However, life is a race when we recognize that there are obstacles that we face, and the best way to live your life is for us to work together. That's why it says at the beginning of verse one that we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. That's all the people in chapter 11 of Hebrews that ran their race well, and now we have the opportunity to look at their faith and how they ran the race, no matter the obstacle, and finished well. We also have brothers and sisters around us right now that are running the race, and they're cheering us on and encouraging us. And once again, because the goal isn't just for me to finish the race, it's for all of us to finish our race. So we encourage and help one another. Now, I experienced this uh, last week. My family and I were on vacation. We were in Atlanta uh, for the better part of a week. And one of the things that we did as a family was we went to an escape room. Have anybody done an escape room? Can I ask that? How have you people never told me about that? I went to one, and I'm like, I can't believe that no one has ever told me about this and how fun it is. Well, we went to an escape room, and we had so much fun. It was so fun, we went back the next day and did another one. And um, now, if you've never been to an escape room, you should, you should go do one. But it was just the five of us, my wife and I and my three kids, and we had to work together. So the, the first one that we did was about this prison escape, and so you are a uh, death row prisoner, and then you have to, but you're going uh, to be executed the next morning, but you have to escape the prison, and so that's kind of what the whole thing is about, and so you all have to work together, and it, listen, what I found was, and this is the point, is that it brought out all the different gifts that we have in our family. My daughter Mia was an absolute superstar, and uh, in fact, the guy who owned the place came out, and it was like, uh, he's like, I watched this whole thing, and your daughter was the MVP um, and he said that the first day and the second day, that she was the absolute best. And one of the things was is that you gotta, when you're going to escape the room, like the cell, you have to find all this stuff. So there's, uh, there's, there's all this stuff. But one of the things is there, there's this um, mattress there and, and the, this little bedpost. And my daughter has this idea. And so she pulls part of the bedpost off. And she finds this string with a magnet attached to it. And so she says to herself, I bet if I lower this down the drain, there'll probably be something down down the drain. She puts it down the drain. She pulls it up. There's a key inside. Now, listen, if you give me three weeks and I sleep in that room, I am never going to have that idea. And so, and in fact, last night I was like, Mia, you were so great in that escape room. And I'm like, I don't even know how you got uh, that idea. And she goes, Dad, if you knew how many things went down the drain in my sink, and I, and and then I start twitching, and I'm like, I want you to stop there, and we are never going to speak of this again because I'm I'm I'm, ha- I'm having twitching as to what's happening inside of our plumbing in our in our house, and so now my son Xander loves riddles, like goes tries to find wants to find riddles that he can. Dis, you know, decipher whatever. And one of the things we had to decipher, like, this really complex series of five or six different riddles. Well, he does it. I mean, at 11 years old, um, my daughter, Livy, d- deciphered a bunch of stuff that I don't even know how you come up with that at the age of nine. And then my wife was great. And, and, and in the middle of it, I tell her, I'm like, you're doing so well. And she says, every cop show I've ever watched has prepared me for this moment. And... Um, and honestly, I was, the, I was like the weak link of the group, where I was like, honestly, I, I'm like, hey, you're doing a great job. I was like the foreman. You know, you ever been on a job site? The foreman just walks around with a clipboard and doesn't do anything? That was basically me uh, in, in there. So now, we didn't escape the prison. Um, we got executed. That was unfortunate. And then, but we, we had so much fun, but he was like, man, you guys want... Um, you guys did great, and so he's like, "If you come back anytime, you're still here, I'll give it to you for half off." And I'm like, "Hey, that's like inexpensive entertainment." We were back the next morning, and so, uh, and so anyway, and then the next one, we were in the Titanic, and so we had to uh, try to slow the, the the water, slow the sinking of the ship, and then get the captain's personal effects, and then raise this flag. Anyway, it was super complex, but you see this one, you see the picture here. We beat it, and uh, we were so excited. I appreciate that. And um, the ship still sank. Don't get me wrong. That's why I think it's funny that Livy's holding a thing that says, what iceberg? Like, the ship still sank. We just got people to safety. And, uh, but, and you can take that picture now. Nobody's going to pay any attention if there's a picture of my kids above me. Um, but the point was this, is that we were working together, encouraging each other, and that allowed us to win our race. Because the only way that I win my race is if they win theirs. The only way they win their race is if we all win, uh, and we win or lose together. In the book of Galatians, and once again, the Apostle Paul brings up this idea of life being a race over and over. You'll see it in your memory verse this week in 1 Corinthians 9. you see it in Galatians chapter 5 where he says, you are running the race so well who hindered you, uh, what has held you back from following the truth. And so if we're gonna run a race to win, there's three things that we need to do according to this one verse. The first thing he says, he says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. You got people cheering you on. The first thing he says is lay aside Every weight. Or as we say in, in our notes, let go of the stuff that's weighing you down. In the ancient Olympics, runners, wore, uh, when they were running the marathon, they ran with next to nothing on, like the very, very bare essentials, and they didn't want anything that was carrying any extra weight. And, um, and, and listen, I, I remember playing football in high school, and they, they, we were, there was a ton of running. And so then there were also times where we had to run in full pads, and we had to run like two miles one time in full pads. And it, was, it really made me question whether I wanted to play football or not. Um, and, then, and then the fact that I'm a terrible runner added problems to that on top of all the weight. And everybody who runs, they always say the same thing. That I, when I talk about hating to run, which I do, um, it's way easier to drive your car. And, uh, and they'll be like, you, Pastor Bob, you just wait till you get the runner's high. And I'm like, I've never gotten the runner's high. I've gotten the runner's cramps. I don't know if that's the same thing. But that's pretty, that's all I've gotten in that uh, regard. And so, but now, but there are things. What he's saying is, is that uh, any kind of weight. And so what he's telling us is that there are, there can be things that keep us from running the race to the best of our ability and running, uh, running to win. And listen, for some of us, it could be a relationship that's pulling us in a bad direction. For others of us, it could be poor choices that we allow into our lives. Sometimes there's things that we justify and that we know are toxic and are hurting us, but we just kind of let it go. Listen, what would happen? I mean, think about your life. If you let those things go, I'm telling you, you wouldn't just run, you'd fly. The second thing he says is, lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. If you're a note taker, he says, let go of the sin that's leading you astray. The writer says that sin can entangle us and keep us from running. That when it all comes down to it, listen, most sin is really involving this. You don't believe that God is telling the truth. That's really what it comes down to, that somehow you believe God is holding out on you. And that's why we do things our own way, because we just think, well, if I just wait, I don't know that God's really going to come through. And you know what happens when we decide that, that we say, I don't know that God is telling the truth. We cannot walk in faith because faith is, is believing that God is telling the truth. And so we just start running another race. And that race doesn't get us to where we want. That race really hurts. And it never leads where we want to go. See, third thing is, he says this at the end of verse 1. He says, lay aside every weight, the sin that so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. You see... And that's the third point, and that is let us run our race with endurance. And endurance means we don't give up when things get difficult. We keep running no matter what. And the challenge is, if we're honest, a lot of times we don't endure. We're like, well, I prayed one time, and it didn't happen. I mean, I read the Bible one time, it didn't happen. I asked for advice, but they told me what I didn't want to hear, so I just kind of did my own thing. And the Greek word for that that word endurance is this word hoopamone. And this word hoopamone literally means cheerful patience. Now, That is an important thing to understand. It's not just patience. It's cheerful patience. And I can, like, I don't know everybody in this room, but I can tell you this. And even if it was in a room full of people, I had no idea who they were. That is in short supply. Because no one, I mean, it's one thing to be patient. It's another thing when you turn onto the highway and you see a bunch of traffic and you're like, well, this is an unexpected treat. That's a different thing altogether, and I don't know anybody who has that. But this idea of cheerful patience, that I'm not going to let the situation dictate what, my, what kind of joy I have in my life. My son taught me this. Uh, it was about a year ago that we, uh, we had this conversation about endurance and whatnot. So it was one morning. I'm sitting at the dining room table in the morning, and I'm drinking some coffee, and my son comes over. And he and I are usually the first ones awake, most of that because he trained me, because he woke me up at 6 a.m., between 5.45 and 6 a.m., seven days a week, for basically the first six years of his life. So now I'm on that schedule, where I just wake up between 5.45 and 6 every morning. Well, anyway, so he sits, because he's awake too, so he sits down with me, and he's playing this game on his iPad called Geometry Dash. Now, if you're younger, who has heard of this game, Geometry Dash? Okay. All right, oh, a lot of you, very good. And by the way, the adults are raised their hand, that was a little weird. But oh it's okay, we won't talk about that today. Now, by the way, do you know that Geometry Dash, by the way, so when my son told me he was playing Geometry Dash, I was like, look at my son, interested in math. Well, I learned Geometry Dash has nothing to do with mathematics. It's basically Super Mario with shapes um which I was very disappointed to find out. So and this story that I'm telling you is how I learned that that wasn't the case, that it had anything to do with um with geometry. And so we're sitting he's like, "Dad, he couldn't believe it. He's so happy." And he's like, he's giddy. And I'm like, "What happened?" He's like, "Dad, I just beat this level in Geometry Dash." And then there's this thing where you can actually look and see how long it took you to beat that level. And so he shows me He goes, "Look, I beat this level. It only took me 2,107 times to beat. And I was like, say what, child? And I'm like, you played a le-. And I'm like, first of all, this isn't about math. That was the first thing. And it really made me realize I need to be more involved in my children's lives. Uh, but the second thing was, like, you played a level 2,107 times. And, but, you know, I, I started having this thought, like, have I ever tried something 2,107 times, and I'm like, I'm not going to give up. And I, I, honestly, it, 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 and then I started feeling kind of impressed that he, was, that he was doing that, but what if we knew that we were doing something, this is the right thing, this is the thing that God has for me. And it's like, we try and we fail, 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 and at some point, some people who love us are like, hey, you've tried 500 times, maybe this isn't gonna work out, and you're like, I'm going at least... Twenty one oh seven. I I I got to go at least that many. And 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 the reality is that when you're running the race, you just say joyful endurance is I am going to run this no matter what. And that's where he goes and say go. How do you find that motivation? That's what he says next. Look at verse two. He says, looking unto Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Now if you pause there... And give me your attention. There's such an important thing here. Second thing that I want you to know about how God is parenting us is that God is modeling our faith to grow. That's the second thing that I think is so here. He's modeling our faith to grow. The writer is continuing with the race theme, even though it's a little bit harder to see here, but it's a description of a race that was run. The ancient Greeks had a race that was called the pentathlon. The pentathlon was five competitions. It involved running, jumping, discus, uh, javelin, and then wrestling at the end. Now, wrestling is not like maybe you might think uh, high school or college wrestling. It was probably more like MMA fighting uh, because one of the things that the wrestlers wore, they wore these gloves that were made to protect your hands but disfigure your opponent. Now, knowing what I just told you, I want to read the text again so that we get this idea where he says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, sat down at the right hand of God. So consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls, for you have not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. He's saying Jesus ran his race and was victorious, and you haven't even reached the level of the race yet where you're fighting back punches that are meant to disfigure you. Now, here's the other thing that I didn't tell you in verse one that I waited to tell you until now is when he says to run the race and you can circle that in your outline if you want and the Greek word is the Greek word agon, A-G-O-N and it, it talks about a race but the other word, it's where we get the English word agony and the idea is that it's a race but it is a painful race because life is painful and anybody who tells you that life isn't painful hasn't lived a life that's worthy of the one and only life that you have. And and let me just, if I can say this for a moment, um, this is the challenge that we face, is that there has never been a culture with a lower pain threshold than the culture in which we are living right now. Do you know that in an ancient Hebrew culture, your flock, this was an agrarian culture, your flock was your livelihood. Your flock was your checking account, your savings account, your 401k. It was everything that you were investing in was in your flock and in your fields. And... The youngest child in your family, right, six, eight, ten years old, they were leading the family flocks. And today we have a culture where kids can't even walk the family dog. And, and its we have previous generations in this country fought wars at the age of 18 and freed countless lives. And you know what happens now at the age of 18? Like, they, they fight a war. They can't even have a conversation. We gotta have safe spaces for people. Do you know that we have to censor speech that we disagree with because the worst thing that could happen to you is that you run into a person that doesn't agree with every single thing and every choice that you've ever made in your life. Give me a break. You know how we grow? is when you have conversation with people who think differently than you. And by the way, you know how if you have, but what if I meet someone with a different faith? You know how your faith is gonna be solidified? is when you have conversation with people that believe different than you, and you defend your faith. But listen, um, and this is the thing that we wish wasn't the case, but is absolutely true. The only way your faith grows is through testing. You know, I wish my faith would grow watching other people exercise faith. I wish my muscles would grow watching other people work out. You know, and I love watching other people work out. I really do. I love watching the CrossFit games on ESPN. I love, my favorite thing, well, there's the hot dog eating competition, but that's a different thing. Um, I love the ESPN Strongman. You ever see the Strongman competition where these guys like have to rip tires in half and carry an old Datsun like 50 yards? Uh, Those are amazing. And uh, I would love to be able to sit on my couch, eat a pizza, and while it's happening, I'm watching a surge of growth in my muscles. And then someone would come up to me and like, you are so muscular. Do you happen to watch a lot of weightlifting? (laughs) Yes, I do. And so, and yet it doesn't work. That's not the way it works. I mean, and I've been trying to eat a little healthier since the new year, trying to lose some weight. I've been doing a hundred crunches a day. They're mostly Nestle's crunches, but it's a start (laughs) now. But we recognize that, that the only way muscles grow is when they are put under stress. In the same way, faith grows when we accept the challenges that God gives to us and we allow them to stretch us because we rarely grow when things are going great. Have you ever noticed that no one has a big spiritual breakthrough while they're at Disney World? Nobody's like, you know what? I was right. God really spoke to me when I was on Thunder Mountain. Like that never happens. I mean, maybe you learned a little bit of patience when you were in line for Thunder Mountain, but that's not the way it works. You know, in my life, here's what I have, have known. I have noticed this, that the moments of greatest growth, and listen, I wish this wasn't true, and I wish I didn't have to tell you this, but here's the reality. The moments of greatest growth in my life have been the moments of deepest pain. But you know, there's this other counter of two or the thing that's true as well, and that is that the painful moments, the most painful moments of my life, have brought the, great, the ability to experience the deepest joy. And I know that that, you're like, are you sure that that's right? yeah. The greatest moments, the the, the moments of greatest growth have been the moments of deepest pain and the most painful moments of my life have given me the ability to experience the deepest joy. And uh, so two weeks from now, my wife and I are celebrating 24 years of holy matrimony. And uh, thank you, appreciate that. You're really clapping for her. It's been very easy for me. Uh, I married the most beautiful woman in the world and uh, she married a guy with a lot of problems and no hair. And so anyway, but... Um, and h- by the way, hands down, year 24 has been our best year, hands down. I mean, and, um, and, and, and I've been, people have been asking me that. I've been saying that, you know, for a while now. Year 24 has been our best year. Our marriage has never been better. And, and so people have been asking me this question, like, what made year 24 so good? But nobody likes the answer. I don't even like the answer, but it's the truth. Like, what made year 24 so good? And here's what made year 24 so good is having some years that weren't good. That's what made year 24 so good. Learning very hard lessons. Me confronting, my wife doesn't have issues. I have issues. I have enough issues for the two of us. And so me confronting my own issues and working through them, very, very painful. And so going through all this kind of painful stuff and working through it is having the bad years now have made the depth of joy even greater. And listen, I wish it wasn't the case, and yet it is that the only way to get to joy is by traveling through the tough road. In fact, we could say it this way, that the only way you get to resurrection is through crucifixion and burial. All right. So, what do I do with the difficulty I'm going through right now? What if I find myself in that place of crucifixion or burial? What do I do there? That's what verse five talks about. He says this, and you have not... Uh, And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten or correct? But if you are without chastening of which all have become partakers, then you were not legitimate, then you're illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to us, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems joyful at the present, but painful, Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's here's the last thing I want to tell you, and that is that God is coaching our faith to last. Coaching is the best word to describe what God is doing in our lives many times. Uh, and that the correction he brings into our lives is training us. That's why, and it's hard to see if you're looking at it in the outline, but if you have a Bible or you're looking at it on, on a Bible app, you'll see that verses 5 and 6 are actually a quotation from Proverbs chapter three, which is a referencing to the correction that God brings in someone's life. And that's why he says uh, that they don't, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. The Greek word is the Greek word pedia, which is, uh, which means to train children. It's where we get our English word pediatrics. And so what does a pediatrician do? They check a child's health so that child can flourish. And this is why parenting is difficult. Because there are moments that what your child needs is unconditional love. And there's other moments that what your child needs is a coach to train them to do the right thing that sometimes there's a difficulty and it's like, yeah, I'm not taking the difficulty away. I'm going to coach you through it. A few years ago, uh, this is, Livy was about two years old at the time. So it's probably seven years ago or so. Um, my wife and I, I came home from church for lunch and then I, I picked her up and then we went to lunch and then I brought her back home. And when I, we got home, I was gonna. I walked in to say goodbye to the kids, and there was writing on the walls in, in our hallway. And as I examine it, and if you have kids, you know like what your kid's drawing art art looks like. Um, and so I see this little handprint, and all the coloring is like two feet off the wall, so I'm pretty sure I know who it is. And so I, Carrie and I walk over, and I say to my daughter Olivia, and I say, Olivia, did you write on the wall? She says, no. I said, well, then what happened? And she says, Xander did it. And I I say to Carrie, I'm like, this little sinner, (laughs) she doesn't even know how to pronounce her own name and she is more than happy to throw her brother under the bus. And so now... What does she need in that moment? Does she need this like, it's okay. Everything that you do is okay. It doesn't matter. No, what she needs right now is a coach that's going to teach her an important lesson, which by the way, has very little to do with writing on the wall, even though that is expressly forbidden in the terms and services when they came into her home. Um, And so, but the greatest lesson here is about owning your mistakes and telling the truth. Why? Because if a child continues to lie, they become a liar. And no one trusts liars. And by the way, here's the other thing. Liars don't trust anyone either. And that is a terrible way to live your life. I'm happy to report today that my daughter Olivia is as honest as Abe Lincoln, uh, as it stands. And, but here's why we struggle, is because we don't want to think of God as a coach who's training us. We just want someone who's going to take the pain away. And, but if you want to run a race that's worth the one and only life that you have, there's going to be some pain involved. Now, the real key to this passage is in the response to the discipline because the writer shows us that there's two ways to respond from the Proverbs passage. There's kind of what I like to call the stoic response where he says, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And when he says don't, uh, that word despise means literally to make light of. So you get corrected and here's how, well, let me just explain it this way. Here's how it works. It's that um, your child lies and you catch them in the lie, and you send them into, your, uh, into their room, and you say, you're not going to the party because you lied. And the child says this. This is the stoic response. Well, I didn't really want to go to that party anyway. And once again, what are you doing? You're making light of the correction. You're making light of the training. The second response is the opposite, but it's, it, it's you know just as bad, where he says, if you look at the second part of verse 5, where he says, don't despise the chasing of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked. That word discouraged means don't faint. And the idea is this, this kind of, the, the the idea in the Greek word is um, kind of like the Scarlett O'Hara, you know, big drama, lots of tears and wailing. If you have a child that's big drama, th- th- they might have this stance when you do this kind of like, that kind of look at times. And this is where you just like, I just can't believe it. My life is coming to an end. And it's like, no, your life's not coming to an end. It's just that party isn't going to happen in your life. And, and, it's, and once again, and by the way, we do this. We do this as adults in how God is dealing with us, where sometimes it's so much drama, and I can't believe it. I can't believe I don't know what God's doing. And, I just, and, and it's just like, and every person that, that we talk to is just like spewing out drama. And then the other side is where like we decide that we're going to be the stoic, is we just say, well, I, I'm sorry, I just can't believe in any God who would allow any kind of pain to come into my life. And then we just decide that, that we're going to walk away. And you know what you're doing? You're fainting over the discipline. You're making light of the discipline, and it just doesn't work. You're never going to run your race if you either make light of it or you faint over it. Listen, if you're experiencing the discipline of God, you know what the good news is? And I know, if you, if you are, I mean, it's tough. But the good news is this. That means you're a child of God. Because you know how you don't discipline other people's kids? God doesn't do that either. He doesn't discipline other people's kids. He disciplines his kids. And so, but no child understands the discipline of their parents. I didn't when I was a kid. And no child understands it. They think it's too much and over the top. And maybe sometimes it is. But, you know, God never over-disciplines Instead, he perfectly coaches us to live better and be ready for the next leg of the race. Now, let me tell you something you don't want to hear, because apparently this is all I've been doing today is telling you things you don't want to hear. So, and this is so true, and what we do in in American culture is if we say, well, if a bad thing happens, well, that means that God wants me to do something else. So my car breaks down, then, you know, You say, well, I know it's going to happen. I'm going to walk to work, and maybe my future husband or future wife is the mechanic who's working on my car, and that's why something bad happened, but it really had nothing to do with me not maintaining the car. It had everything to do with it. No, listen, maybe, and maybe that'll happen. God can do anything, but if we always fix an external reason to any pain that comes into my life, we are never going to grow. Instead, there are moments when the point of the pain is internal. Where God is seeking to show me what I look like in those moments and reflect it back to me so he can transform me. And the wisest among us when we are confronted with pain will always ask the question, Lord, what are you trying to show me that needs to change? That's why the encouragement is to fix our eyes on Jesus. Because Jesus suffered, but he suffered well. And that's why in this regard, Christianity has a leg up on any other belief system or philosophy, because if you're a secular person, then whatever pain or challenge you're experiencing, it has no meaning, because life has really no meaning. And those who subscribe to another belief system or religious idea, then in every other religion on planet Earth, God is separate from his creation. God is separate from people. God is separate from suffering because he cannot relate to it. And this is where I believe that Christianity has the greatest leg up on any other faith is because we can fix our eyes on Jesus because Jesus suffered with his creation and suffered for his creation and he understands suffering like no one else because Jesus in his suffering was seeking us. And the key to handling suffering in our lives is by seeking him. And this is absolutely true for those of us that are Christians. And it's absolutely true for those of us who haven't made a decision to follow Jesus because that's what God is seeking. Do you know this? That you were created, whether you're a Christian or not, you were created for eternity. You were created for eternity. And God wants to spend an eternity with you. And here's the cool thing. When you come to know Jesus, you don't get eternal life when you die. You get eternal life starting right now. And your entire, the entire trajectory of your life changes. And everything that was in the past gets forgiven. And the regret of all of it can wash away because of God's grace. But that's the whole point. Jesus died for us. And you know, it would be an amazing story if it ended there. Oh, but it's so much better than that. He died for us and then he rose again. And he gives us the opportunity to know him, to be forgiven by him, and to run a race that matters. And so this is the moment where we make a decision that says we're going to fix our eyes on Jesus and run the race that we were created to run. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for suffering well that we see what that race looks like, a race that can be won. And so, God, we're grateful that we don't have to do it alone, but you want to walk with us and be with us. And, God, I pray for every person, even now, that maybe hasn't made a decision to follow you, that this would be the moment when everything changes, when your grace comes into their lives and they are transformed from the inside out as they come to know you. Listen, with every head bowed and every eye closed as we're praying together, if you're saying, Pastor, that's me, I need to invite Jesus to come into my life. I want to experience his forgiveness. I want to be free from my past, and I want to have a future that matters, a future with him. If that's the case, I want to pray for you as we close, and I'm going to just invite you with every head bowed and every eye closed. You just raise your hand. I want to pray for you as we close. So if you say, hey, I want Jesus to come into my life, just keep him up. Hands up. God, see your hands there. See your hands there. God bless you guys. See your hands in the back, all over this room. God bless you guys. Lord, I want to thank you for every hand that's lifted that represents a heart that is open and ready for you to do the work that only you can do. The work of forgiveness, the work of transformation, the work of new beginnings. And so Lord, as they call out to you, I pray that you would hear from heaven and that this would be the day that changes everything. Those of you that lifted a hand, I'm going to invite you to repeat this prayer with me. It's a prayer of commitment. Are you're telling God, God, I'm serious and I'm inviting you to come into my life. In fact, I'm going to invite you to pray it out loud. We're all going to pray it out loud together. Just say, dear God, I come to you today and I'm sorry for all I've done wrong. I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.